Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. My name is Chris Colquitt. For those of you I may not know, uh, I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Northwestern, uh, which means that I'm a pastor in this denomination. We, we attend this church, uh, but my main preaching gig is on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. over at uh, Northwestern. So uh, it is a delight anytime I get to preach at Grace and to be with you all. Thank you for your support of RUF. Um, and for your love of me and our family. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we will jump in to this sermon. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to gather as your called people to worship you. Lord, this relationship is begun and sustained by you. We could not know you, Lord, if you did not reveal yourself to us. And so we thank you that you have, both in all of creation, but especially in your word and in your son. And we now pray to you, the author of this message, that your Holy Spirit would be with us, be with me, be with all of us, to see and treasure Christ. Lord, you have not and will not restrain your mercy from us. And we pray that you would help me not to restrain my lips that we might this morning proclaim and celebrate the glad news of deliverance that you have revealed to us in your Son. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing a series entitled Eight Days That Changed the World. We're looking at the Passion Week as we continue our march through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, our scripture uh, puts us on Maundy Thursday. Thursday night, the night of the Last Supper, to orient ourselves in a matter of hours in the middle of the night, in the early morning hours of Friday, Jesus will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Friday around 9 a.m. he's going to get crucified. So we're right there at the edge of these great events. And our text this morning is especially notable because in it we have the institution of the Lord's Supper a sacrament that we will celebrate together uh, later this morning ourselves. Now, I have to start with a disclaimer, which is this. There's lots that can be said, should be said, might be asked about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Nick gave us a good introduction in the children's sermon, so hopefully you were paying attention there. My goal is not going to be to give us a systematic overview of everything we could say about the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't have time, and and that's not what we're going to try to do this morning. What I want to do this morning... um, is to zoom in on its placement here, the very first celebration of this sacrament, uh, this night before Christ is crucified. And I want us to think together about how this meal functions in the lives of the disciples who receive it in the midst of the events that are about to unfold. Their world is about to be rocked. And just before all hell breaks loose, Jesus prepares for them a meal and serves them and says, this is my body and this is my blood. So why, we want to ask this morning, why does Jesus institute the supper here and what role does it play in the lives of the disciples in this moment? And and from that, as we go, I think we'll begin to see how that meal functions in our own life. If you're a regular attender at Grace, this is a familiar and even commonplace meal And yet what I want us to see tonight is, or excuse me, this morning, RUF talk, uh, this morning, is that it is anything but commonplace. 
It is regular and it is for us and it is always here for us. And yet it is supernatural and magnificent and we desperately need it just as the disciples did that morning or that evening of, of Thursday. Okay, so in this text, evil is about to be unleashed. It begins by Jesus predicting that one of the disciples will betray him. Indeed, Judas has already been paid for his work. And we know in John that just after this confrontation with Judas, he slips out of the room and goes to, to set the uh, plan in motion. Things are happening that will not be reversed in this moment. He'll be arrested, tried, and crucified in the morning. And for the disciples who are receiving this feast, the 11 who are left in the room with Jesus, their world is about to be turned upside down. This man, whom they have left everything in their life to follow, on the belief that who he said he was is true, namely the Savior of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God, their leader is about to be taken, arrested, murdered on a cross. And Jesus predicts, rightly, that this is not going to go well for them. He tells them they will all fall away in the day that is ahead. And Peter doesn't believe him, but Christ says, no, in fact, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the sun even rises. Can you imagine being a disciple in that room and what is about to happen to Jesus? And so just before all of this happens, as they celebrate this Passover, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He sets apart a new feast for his people. And so our question this morning is, what does that do for the disciples? And ultimately, what is that doing for us? So I want to suggest there are three messages that the disciples need to hear that Jesus is communicating to them in this text and in this meal. First, your God is in control. Second, your sins are forgiven. And third, your hope is sure. Jesus knows what this next day is going to look like for his disciples, and he wants them to know these three things. Your God is in control, your sins are forgiven, and your hope is sure. So let's jump into that outline. First, the first message, your God is in control. One of these men's closest companions, one of the 12, has left the room, is going to betray Jesus, and Jesus himself will be turned over to the authorities, wrongfully convicted and crucified. And to help the disciples, Jesus, who has already told them what is going to happen, tells them once again. And in his words and in this meal, Jesus is pre-interpreting what it is that's about to happen. It starts with Judas' own betrayal. He tells them this is going to happen. And then he says something in verse 24 that's really significant and maybe easy to miss. He says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. The son of man goes as it is written of him. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the prophecies. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is about to happen and it's going to seem like the plan is thrown out the window, like everything is out of control. But this is not a surprise. This is not a setback. This is not a mess up. This is the plan. And it's been written 
this way, and it's been in God's mind since before the creation of the world. I have a habit, Kristen and I will watch TV shows, and I like to predict what's going to happen, and shows are pretty predictable. And so I'll get my phone out, rather than ruining it for her, I'll get my notes app out, and I'll write down what's going to happen, and then I'll show it to her when it actually happens. Now, if it doesn't happen, I don't show it to her, obviously. Now, in that moment, I'm trying to prove how smart I am. But God here, in having a plan and revealing his plan hundreds of years before this event, is proving something slightly different, and that is this, that he is in control even when the world seems like it's falling apart. And Jesus knows the disciples need to know that in this moment for what is about to come. This is not a surprise, even though it's going to feel very much like it is. And then he institutes the supper, the meal. And we're going to talk more about the meal as we go, but I want us to begin by just imagining the setting that this is placed in. And the setting stands in the starkest contrast possible with what is about to happen, because in a matter of hours, there are going to be torches, there's going to be shouting, there's going to be angry crowds, there's going to be a crucifixion. But in this moment that we find ourselves in this text, they're in an upper room with their closest brothers, with their Lord. It is quiet. It is peaceful. They are reclining at a feast. And this meal that they are sharing, the Passover meal, is as familiar to them, probably more so, than Thanksgiving is to you and to me. This is where they sit on the, on the eve, on the brink of all that is to come. They sit in a quiet room with their Lord celebrating a feast that is known to them intimately. And in that moment, Jesus takes the bread and the wine and he serves them a new feast. And he tells them in that feast a picture of what's about to happen. He gives them an explanation of what is about to happen when he goes to the cross. This is my body. This is my blood, which is given, poured out for the remission of sins. The key point here for us to see, um, in the, we're going to talk more about what the, the sacrament means. But just a very simple fact is that Jesus is serving this meal in advance of the events that are symbolized in it. And this is the same picture that God, Jesus, is the host of all that is about to happen. It is going to seem like Judas and the Jewish and Roman authorities and the angry crowds are taking Christ's life from him by force. And Jesus here, before all of that happens, in the calm of the upper room, serves himself to his disciples and says, no, I am giving myself to you. And then he commands them, take, eat, drink of it, all of you. What is about to happen, Christ is in charge of. And he wants them to know that. This reminds us of John 10, where in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. But he is insistent that his disciples know this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And so at the, at the brink of this chaos that's about to be unleashed, Jesus says, 
It's been written. And what's about to happen, this is a picture of it, and I am serving this feast to you. I am the host of this next few days. Don't be afraid. The second message we see in this, which is the central message of the supper itself, is this message that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Despite Jesus' encouragement that he is in control, uh, he knows the disciples are not going to feel that way. He knows they are going to freak out, as it were, (laughs) as hell breaks loose. And he predicts correctly that everyone there eating that meal will fall away because of him that night. And when Peter objects, he says, nope, you too, and especially you. You'll deny me three times before day breaks. See, this day that is about to follow is not just going to be a day of chaos and fear where they need to know that God is in control. It's that. But it's also going to be a day of shame and guilt where they need to know that their sins are forgiven. Peter, in hours, the rooster will crow a third time. He will deny Christ and he will weep bitterly. Not because the events are crazy, but because his heart is dark and he bears the guilt of denying Christ. The disciples need to know that their sins are forgiven and so Jesus serves them a meal that pronounces that very thing. This sacrificial meal prepares them prepares them for what is to come. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now here we need to pause and we are going to get in the weeds a little bit of the Lord's Supper and what's going on. Um, we can say again a lot about the Lord's Supper, but one thing that's I think very helpful, which is suggested to us by its context in the Passover, is that the nature of this meal, the Lord's Supper, is, is something that exists elsewhere, which is to say it is a sacrificial feast. A sacrificial feast. Now, what's a sacrificial feast? A sacrificial feast is that which takes place, a feast that takes place after a sacrifice is made. And we see this in several different places in the Old Covenant. Basically, you bring a sacrifice, and some are burnt entirely, and you don't do anything with them. But a lot of them, you offer the sacrifice, and then the sacrifice is roasted or cooked in some way, right? And then you get to feast on it. Uh, My seminary professor uh, had a very helpful image for me as a Texan to think about the temple. He said, if you walked into the temple courts, the closest approximation of what that sensory experience would be like would be like going into a smokehouse of a barbecue joint, right? Have you ever been into like a Texas smoke, like a real place, they're really, the pit, right? That, oh, that aroma, it's so beautiful. That's what it would have been like. They're cooking meat, Okay, some of y'all get your smoker out soon. That's a picture of the temple sacrifice. Why? Because then you're going to feast on that meat. Because the sacrifice is offered, and then in a sacrificial feast, you are able to participate in the benefits of that sacrifice in a meal of celebration. A meal not that you prepared, but that the, the God who you offered that sacrifice to now prepares a feast for you and says, here, share, take, eat. 
That sacrificial feast, we see several versions of that in the Old Testament, but one of the most important, the first, was the Passover, which is what they're celebrating this very night. If you guys remember the Passover, we could go back to Exodus and hear the story of the people of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses comes to deliver his people, says, let my people go, Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. And finally, God says, I'm going to deliver a final curse on this nation. I am going to kill all the firstborn of the people of Egypt. Now, the problem is that the Jews are living among the people of Egypt, and the angel of the Lord is coming to destroy it. But God says, no, you people, you are my people, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, put its blood on your doorposts, and when I come to visit my wrath on this land, I will pass over your home, and you will be spared. That's the Passover. Now, as that night is happening, after the sacrifice has been made, do you know what they do? They have a sacrificial feast. They feast upon the lamb. The lamb is taken to the temple once the temple is established, and it's brought home, and there is a meal, and it is eaten. Roast lamb, smoked lamb. That's the feast that they're enjoying in this moment. It's a sacrificial feast. They are participating in the benefits of God's grace to the people of Israel, celebrated in the Passover In that context, we sit, okay? The disciples are at the table. The lamb is probably there on the table. Now, what did that lamb, what was that lamb all about? Well, if we read the Old Testament and the prophecies and we read the New Testament and the way they're interpreted, that lamb at the Passover feast was Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. That was the whole point. And hopefully you can see that. The wrath of God passes over us because we are covered in the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. And so here we have at this table the Lamb of God sitting in front of this typological, symbolic sacrifice that is pointing forward to him. And this is interesting. He doesn't take the Lamb and say, this is my body. He starts something new, right? Because the Lamb pointed to him, and he's here now. And he's about to go to the cross. And he institutes in this moment a new sacrificial feast, a new opportunity for his disciples to participate in him, in the sacrifice that he is about to offer, which is himself. And so he offers them bread and wine and says, this is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, drink of it, all of you. Participate in the benefits of my sacrifice that I'm about to offer. Now, what's interesting about this first, um, this first celebration of the Lord's Supper is it happens in advance. But every celebration since, including the one we will do this morning, is a celebration of a sacrifice that has been accomplished and finished. But we are invited to the feast that comes after. That's what's going on here. Jesus is inviting his disciples to participate, to share in his body and blood, which are about to be offered for the forgiveness of their own sins. And let's remember back to where we are. What's about to happen? Peter's going to deny Christ three times because he'd rather stay warm by a fire than be associated with the Savior and Lord that he's followed for these three years. And he's going to weep bitterly. And he needs to know, as do all the disciples who will scatter and flee, and you and I need to know in our guilt that Jesus is going to the cross to solve that problem, to forgive our sins. 
the wrath of God that Peter is owed, that you and I are owed as we deny our Savior. We are passed over because we are participants in his blood. Jesus says, you're going to need this. This is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat, drink of it, all of you. Evil is about to seem like it's completely in charge, including in your own flesh and heart. But know that what I'm about to do is going to solve that problem for you. Take of me. Feast on me because I'm going to accomplish something for you. Your sins are forgiven. The disciples need to hear this. Now, this, this helpfully, I think, solves a riddle that might have occurred to some of you, or maybe it just occurred to me, sitting around thinking about this passage for too long. Uh, that's this. If you look at our text, and you can see it in your, you can see it in your bulletin, uh, we have the Lord's Supper there in verses 26 to 29. And then on either side of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is predicting that his disciples are going to fail him. Right? So first he predicts that Judas is going to betray him. And then they take the supper, and then he predicts that all his disciples are going to fall away and that Peter's going to die him, deny him three times. That's kind of a, an exciting, uh, depressing context in which this exists. But here's the question I want us to think about just briefly. Why are the results so different for Judas and the disciples? Because for Judas, it's judgment. Verse 24, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But what does he say to the disciples? Verse 32. You will all fall away, verse 31. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The future for Judas is a a death and judgment. The future for the disciples is fellowship with Jesus in Galilee and the risen Lord. How, How do we get from one to the other? Well, the heart of it, the difference between Judas and the disciples is that Judas has completely rejected Christ and has no part in him. And that's symbolically hinted at here in this, in this story because Judas leaves. He doesn't partake of this meal. He is not a sharer in the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make, but the disciples are. They are partaking of the benefits of his sacrifice. Jesus is going to the cross to do the work so that he can have fellowship with these disciples even though they have denied him and will deny him and will abandon him. And he wants them to know that. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that. And this takes us to our final point, which is this measure of hope. Your hope is sure. God is in control. Your sins are forgiven and your hope is sure. The heart of the Lord's Supper, the main thing, the most important thing is that second point. Your sins are forgiven. The supper points to the sacrifice of Jesus. It is a celebration and participation in that sacrifice. But there's also this measure of hope here in Jesus, both in his words and in the supper him itself. We see that in the short term. You're gonna, I'm going to see you in Galilee after I rise again. But then we see it in the longer and even more significant term. Because, look, after giving the bread and wine, what does he say in verse 29? He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus tells them, even now, as they're sharing this bread and this wine, 
which Jesus probably actually wasn't drinking and eating. He says, I'm going to drink that wine again with you in my Father's kingdom someday. That's the future. We will feast together again. It's going to feel like the next 48 hours are the end. It's going to feel like it's over, but I am telling you now in this meal, this cup, I will drink of it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he's showing them that in the picture of the sacrament itself. Because throughout the Bible, when the Bible talks about the end, when it talks about the consummation of all things, when it talks about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, what we're looking forward to, the picture is of a feast with new wine. It's a great picture. We see it in Revelation, in the wedding supper of the Lamb. We see it in the prophets. Drinking new wine is a symbol of that final feast. And so what Jesus is telling them here is that this supper, this meal... Yes, it's all about participating in the sacrifice that has been accomplished, but it is also a picture, a reminder that there is a feast to come. I will drink wine with you again in glory forever. It is a foretaste. Most of y'all, a lot of y'all were on spring break last week. Uh, I think spring break's a great uh, illustration of what a foretaste is. Spring break's basically you get to act like it's summer for a week. Um, hopefully, if you're a student, if you're a grown-up, you've just been working. Um, but a lot of y'all go somewhere else, right, where it's warm. It was snowing here this week, right? You get to go pretend like school's not happening. You get to rest. And in that moment, you are participating in, in a sense, right, summer before it happens. You're looking forward to summer before it happens. Summer's coming, but it's not here yet. And this day, this, this Lord's Sabbath and the meal that he prepares for us on this day and the wine that he offers to us in this cup is a foretaste of the great summer to come, the great feast that he has prepared for us and will share with us, the feast that is secured by the very work that he goes to the cross to do. The disciples needed hope in this moment, and Jesus gave it to them. I'll see you in Galilee, and even more than that, I'll drink this wine new with you in my Father's kingdom. This meal is for the disciples that night, and this meal is for you and me. Their world was about to be turned upside down. Chaos was about to reign, and they needed to know that their God was in control. They were about to fall flat on their face and deny Christ, and they needed to know that their sins were forgiven. And they would be tempted to despair. Oh, how they would be tempted to despair, and they needed to know that their hope was sure. In closing this morning, I just want to think about how this applies to you and me this morning. Where in your life this morning do you need to know that your God is in control? You can look at culture and just get all worried about how things seem upside down. But many of us, most of us can look at our own lives and in smaller and in some ways much more painful ways see how evil seems to be prevailing in certain sectors of our life. Suffering seems to be the norm. God seems to be out of control. And yet the heart of our faith, the heart of the realities of the gospel, is a moment that seemed very much the same. And yet it was a meal prepared by Jesus himself, planned by God before the beginning of time, and offered to us for our good. And so, brothers and sisters, if God can take the worst thing that ever happened, which is 
this events of the crucifixion. Nothing more evil has ever happened in this world. And yet make them the single greatest event that ever happened in the history of the world. The climax of his redemptive history. If he can do that, then surely he is with you in these smaller evils that you know intimately in your life right now. He can work those for good as well. Indeed, he has. If he didn't spare his own son, he will surely give you all things. And that may mean death, and it may mean suffering, and it may not mean happiness and renewal in this life. But the host of this feast, Jesus Christ himself, who served his body and his blood, he is with you and he loves you. And he is in control. And this life that we live will be full of bitter tears of guilt and shame. Because you and I, like Peter, we like a nice warm fire in this world. And we are prone to deny our Savior in word, thought, and deed by things done and undone. And when that hits us, there is a temptation to weep bitterly in that guilt and shame. And Christ has prepared a meal for you, and he serves it to you every week. And in it is a participation in his body and blood that guarantees for you your participation in him. The work that he has gone to do, so that though we deny him, he tells us we will be with him again. Indeed, he is with us now, and he will feast with us in the future. Your sins are forgiven, and that future hope is sure. We are all pilgrims in this world, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, it's scary and it's hard. And despair seems ever present as a threat to our hearts and minds. We need to know that this meal is true. We need to know that our hope is sure. Christ calls us to follow him outside the gates, to leave that warm fire behind, to take up our cross and live lives of radical self-sacrifice. And in the face of the despair of this world and in the call to love Jesus, the only way we can deal with either of those things and both of those things at once is to know that our hope is sure and that what Jesus has done is real and that he will feast with us again. That is our future and it is sure. So go out and lay down your lives. In a moment when we celebrate this sacrament, in the words of the institution that Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians, what is the end of it? Proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. And brothers and sisters, he will come again. And this meal is a reminder and a promise of that. It's a foretaste of that. Enjoy spring break now because summer is on its way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you love us enough to feed us and nourish us in the midst of the chaos and challenges of this life and this world, Lord. The challenges are outside of us and they are inside of us. And the causes for despair are real. And yet you tell us that you are with us, that our sins are forgiven, and that our hope is sure. And Lord, we pray now, as we come to your table, you would bless us with that reality by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. Be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.